Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Let me give all you a quick heads up about SeatGeek, who have been kind enough to both sponsor the show and also provide those of you who aren't skipping past the segment essentially some house money to work with. It's pretty sweet being a sports fan these days. Uh, The baseball season's underway, and most importantly, the NBA and NHL playoffs are finally here. If you've been waiting around for the right opportunity to go check out a game and enjoy the live experience of being in a building with a bunch of other crazed maniacs with similar interests screaming their heads off, this is as good a time as any to do so. SeatGeek can help you do just that. They've got a really handy mobile app that requires only a few clicks to find the best values on tickets that are out there. And when you finally pick something out to your liking... They'll even provide you with a $20 rebate to use on future ones as well. To get your own $20 rebate on tickets, all you have to do is download the SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, enter the promo code PDO, and SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. All you've got to do is download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code PDO today and you'll get those $20. Now let's get back to the show. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and uh, joining me on the other line is Joe Yurdon. Joe, what's going on, man? Uh, Dimitri, it's uh, it's been a day. Let's let's put it that way. <laughs> it has been a day. You know, for the record, though, we should say that uh, the show was a long time coming, and we actually had started planning it before uh, the Eichel stuff really got out of control, and the news of the firings eventually came out. So, uh, you know, I guess I guess the timing worked out pretty well for the show. Maybe uh, maybe not if you're Tim Murray or Dan Bausma, but for us, for sure. Yeah, it's it's funny the way it worked out because because yeah, we were talking about this the the other day, and you know, obviously with all the uh, with all the stuff surrounding Eichel and and everything that had to had to do with that, I had no inkling that there was that things were going to come to a head this quickly. But yet here we are, and the Sabers are basically back to uh, square one. Yes, they're back to square one. Um, all right, we got we got some juicy stuff here to unpack. I think that uh. You know, I, honestly, I don't even want to get into the uh, the whole sort of gossipy side of things here with whether uh, all of this is because Jack Eichel was actually involved and whether he was, you know, this was a power move and the ownership was trying to appease their best player. I, I think for our purposes, that doesn't really matter. I'd rather uh, attack this thing from, from looking at the respective resumes and whether the moves were actually warranted. And whenever we have these sorts of discussions, uh, the first logical layer we kind of need to peel back and figure out is, who's responsible for what and how much of it is on the GM for not assembling the right combination of players versus the coach for uh, not utilizing them 
them properly or making the most of what he's given? Like, where where do you stand on that? I, obviously, both guys are gone. So for Sabres fans, uh, maybe it might not matter. But just in terms of like assessing what went wrong here, uh, who's how would you divvy up the blame, basically? Well, I think when you when you look at it this way, it's you can almost understand why the Pagulas figured, well, let's just send both guys out of here because I think what Tim Murray wasn't able to do in, in getting the team set up and, you know, the, the biggest, the, the glaring uh, weakness with this team going into the season was, was defense. And everybody knew it was going to be a work in progress that needed absolutely everything to go perfect for it to be at least, you know, a playoff type team. And, you know, the, the best laid plans never seem to pan out the way that you want them to. And they certainly didn't in this case, because it's a team that had to rely on about 10 or 11, seemed like 10 or 11 different defensemen this season and, and getting looks at different guys. And, you know, they, you know, they make a big trade in, in during the draft where, you know, they, they move a guy out who's, who is a solid puck mover, but not a physical player for a guy who was, you know, who's seen some hard miles in his seven, seven, eight years and, and you know, isn't exactly a, a great first pass guy. But it's, you know, it, it's something where, you know, Murray didn't give Bilesma the guys to really necessarily make it work. And I don't know that Dan really did a whole lot to, to really help his case because, you know, it, the, you know the, the, the main question I had asked Tim Murray at the end of the season press conference was, you know, what his vision for the team was. Did he want him to be a a chip and chase team and a, and a team that has to go retrieve pucks in the corner the way Dan Bilesmo was coaching him up. And he said, no, I, I want, I want us to be a speed team. I want us to be a possession team. And it seemed like the words didn't necessarily mesh with what was happening on the ice in, in either case. So to me, it's, you know, you, you can understand why both guys get shown the door because I'm sure their visions were, were well, I mean, at least seemingly were, were drastically different. Well, and that's, I think, a common theme that you see amongst successful organizations, not just in hockey, but in all of pro sports, where, you know, everyone from the top down seems to have a shared vision. And, and obviously, you know, it, it's good to have healthy debate. And maybe sometimes you clash over a certain player or a certain uh, stylistic preference and, and you come to a conclusion. But ultimately, like, you know, everyone's everyone's pushing in the same direction and you're not having uh, all of this internal turmoil. And that, that seems pretty clear. There was some sort of disconnect between the two, as you just mentioned. Yeah, and I, it, you, you see the way I, it, it's so difficult to, to look back at how, how the Sabres seem to play about 80, 80% of the time where, you know, they, you know, they give up an early goal and they're, and they're chasing the rest of the game, but yet they're trying to play this, this system where, you know, the, the first pass is coming from, from deep out of their own end and it's going off of a stick. It's not even a controlled entry type of play. It's just going off the stick of a player in the neutral zone to make sure the puck goes deep into the corner and, and everybody's flat-footed and just trying to race defensemen who are already wheeling their way back to try to get the puck. And it's 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 so frustrating because you saw how well Bilesmo was able to do in Pittsburgh. And granted, you know, having Malkin and Stahl, <laughs> Rosby makes right. makes life a lot a lot easier, especially when you add in a Chris Letang and, and you have that kind of success. But, but geez, it, it just seemed like a night and day kind of thing, at least from Dan's early days in Pittsburgh. I got a funny feeling if you compared tape of his last season with the Pens to to a lot of games this year with Buffalo, things might look very eerily similar for for the way things were played. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, 
let's talk a little bit here about you know Murray's resume and his moves. And I think that before we get into individual ones, the the first point that needs to be made, and and I can't emphasize this one strongly enough, is <clears throat> you know I, th- I think Murray's approach in terms of tearing things down completely, stripping off all the parts, bottoming them out, and going for broke with the draft lottery uh, was and remains a smart strategy. I think that. You know, honestly, when you reach a certain point as a franchise, it's it's really the only logical uh, course of action. And, and I know that, you know, this firing and the Sabres not really having much to show for, honestly, a couple of the worst seasons we've seen uh, in the NHL in a long time is something people are going to use to show that tanking is bad. But the NHL is a superstar-driven league, and I think in most instances, the only way to get one of those superstars is to be really bad and then get lucky and... um you know, for I think that maybe as much as I love Jack Eichel, and we can talk more about him, if this team had Connor McDavid, for example, and just got a bit luckier with that lottery, uh, we'd probably be having a different discussion at this point in time. Yeah, no, there's no doubt about that. I mean, that, that draft is fascinating to me because there are so many, so many very good players in that draft. But it's just Connor is so far is so head and shoulders above everybody else. It's it's foolish. I mean, it's. To, to think that there was a, even a competition, I, mean, I don't even think there really was one. But, you know, to, to frame it as, you know, Connor versus Jack, I mean, yeah, they were the two, probably the two best guys in that draft. But, I mean, to, to frame it that, you know, you're not really losing out if you didn't get the number one pick, now you're, you were going to lose out. You weren't, you weren't getting, you weren't getting the next absolute, you know, knock it out of the park generational guy. And I think that's, I mean, I think back to that day, being in Toronto for the, um, for the lottery that day and, and speaking with the coyote, you know, the coyotes owner and, you know, getting that view from inside the room as they're pulling the numbers. And, you know, when he, yeah, I'll never forget it to this day. He said that once we saw, we were out of it, you know, the coyotes, once the coyotes weren't big, going to be able to get that first pick. He's like, we were rooting for Buffalo. Like we did not want Edmonton getting that pick. And then Edmonton gets the pick and I'm, and I'd be willing to bet. That's exactly what everyone else in that room was thinking. Like, she's not these guys again, but, but I mean, that's, I mean, these are the state. I mean, that's what happens with the lottery. But the, the, the key for Buffalo was you, know, you had to finish last. You had to give yourself a chance to make that happen. It's, and, you know, leaving it up to fate kind of stinks. But, I mean, this is a, this is a, a, a scrap down pull apart that's been happening since Darcy Regeer was in charge. I mean, you look back to when they traded Jason Pominville to the Wild. And, you know, that was, that was the trade that, that was the first domino that really started things going down that road of, of just pulling everything apart. And, you know, obviously some other factors played into that. You know, you fire Lindy Ruff, you bring in Ron Ralston, and Ron Ralston just didn't have it. And things started looking really bad, and then, you know, you had, they had to save face. And then you bring in Ted Nolan, and you go that way. And, you know, I think Ted was, you know, Ted's a great person, great person. I just don't think he was he was ever cut to be a coach in this this kind of NHL. And, and things, you know, things just snowball from there. And now this is... This is a whole new wrinkle into everything. It's just, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's gotten to this point already. Yeah. Well, it's funny because just like for some perspective, I know that I've said this a bunch of times, but it just bears repeating. Like with the, everyone wants to make the Oilers out to be this, you know, new, uh, refined team where Peter Shirelli did a masterful job of putting all these different players together and, and making it all work. But it, at the end of the day, like if you look at the, the Sabres and the Oilers, uh, it's it's not there's not that much difference but beyond the fact that uh jack eichel just unfortunately isn't Connor mcdavid like it's you know cam talbot and and robin leonard were pretty comparable this year i think that the supporting casts you know the oilers blue line was better but it's not that much drastically better 
to, to, yeah. to make up for the difference between these two teams. All At the end of the day, it is just the fact that Connor McDavid was the best player in the league and made everyone so much better around him. And, and th- th- that kind of sucks, and it's a tough pill to swallow. I mean, you know, Eichel is a perfectly fine... Uh, uh, fallback option and, and you'd rather have him than not but it, it's just it, it really does sometimes uh, come down to the things as simple as that and, and they just kind of you know drew the short end of the stick there yeah and I mean it's it's crazy to think that that one player can make that much of a difference but it's it's totally the case with McDavid because he's able to, to do things on his own to take over games but it's not to say that Eichel can't do the same I mean he, he can it's just his his skill his skill package is is so much different. You know, I don't think he. I, I think Connor is is such a smarter player, and it's not to say that you know Jack's a dumb player. He's not, but but the way Connor uses his skill set and, and for what he does, I think it's it, it, he has to use it. He, he does it in such a different way than than, than Jack does, and I I don't know that. I, I don't know that Jack has that has that ability to, you know, to, to pass the way McDavid, I mean, McDavid's probably already a top five, top three passer. Yeah. And, you know, Jack doesn't thread it the way he does. I think Jack's Jack might have a better shot, but that's, that's up for debate. You know, McDavid's probably a faster skater. We've, we've already seen in the playoffs that McDavid's doing, getting to do things on the, you know, shorthanded. So, you know, I think that's, I mean, that's, that's part of his skill of, I mean, we, Saw McDavid. I saw McDavid doing that here in Buffalo with Erie, playing shorthanded because they were like, "Well, let's let's open up the bag. Let's let's show what else he can do." And he scored shorthanded that night here too. So, I mean, it's it, it, when it comes. To, I mean, it, it it was a much debated thing for something that had no debate. I think that's what it boils down to with those right. two. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's, so. I mean, I was looking at some of the other moves uh, Murray made, and, and I, I like a lot of the other stuff he did. I mean. Like the return he got for Ryan Miller and Steve Ott from a desperate Blues team was was really good. Uh, you know, getting a couple assets for Matt Molson before quickly re-signing him was smart. I I'm a Joel Armia fan, but I still think the Evander Kane trade was ultimately a win for the Sabers, and and the O'Reilly one was a no-brainer. But with that said, like, and I know this is something that's going to seem sacrilegious considering that Tim Murray's supposed to be you know one of us, and I should be propping him up on this uh, analytics pedestal. But I, I I just I look at this roster and I, I really I think it's fair uh, to say that, you know, the Sabres were justified in this decision. And that's not to say that he won't ever be a good GM and that he can't use his experience to be better in his next gig. But just purely in terms of the team he put together, it's it's fair to be critical. I mean, listen, the teardown is the easy part of any renovation. And, and I think it's easy to just look at the things that obviously don't fit and shouldn't stay and, and to just get rid of them and send them out the door. But ultimately figuring out what should go there to replace it and figuring out a logical way to acquire those pieces. That's an entirely different challenge. And especially with the blue line, as we mentioned, I just, I just don't think enough was done there ultimately to, uh, to say that he did a good enough job to keep his job here. Yeah. And the, the defense thing is what has been, had been Murray's thing forever. You know, from, from the moment he came in here, he knew defense was the thing he had to fix up and it took him, Took him until last summer when he, you know, he trades for Kulikov to find a guy who even remotely fit the mold of a top four left-handed defenseman. And I mean that I mean, that's been debated ad nauseum as to you know exactly you know what Kulikov is and how he can play. And I, I, yeah, it's <laughs> it's honestly been an exhausting topic yeah. in Buffalo. But I mean, when when you're getting to the point where 
where Kulikov is your guy where you're like, okay, this this is the guy we can get to compliment Ristolainen and, and try to make and have our D go from there. It's like, well, do you want your D to start there or do you want that to be maybe, you know, your 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 middle of the pack kind of D setting? I mean, that, but I, it, defense has become such a thing in this league, you know, for 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 puck control purposes, for passing, for passing, for getting things set up that teams now, I mean, they're hoarding their defensemen and that's, that makes it hard to make trades. And I think that's, that was one of Murray's strong points is that he was able to make some trades, you know, the Kane trade, obviously the O'Reilly trade, very obviously where he was able to get elite players without really giving up a whole lot. I mean, Sabres fans will, will find ways to grumble about the Kane thing because, you know, if Joel Armia scores a goal, they'll say, oh, geez, we had him. I can't believe we got rid of him. But, right. I mean, pretty clear they got the best player in that in that trade. And obviously the O'Reilly trade, they did the same. So GMs become wary of other GMs when they start, <laughs> they start getting rooked over. And I think that's what started happening with Murray. And, you know, teams, other GMs' way to counter that is to come back with, ridiculous offers and Tim was just like, you know, forget that. I'm not going to, I'm not going to make a crazy offer just to get a middle of the road defenseman. Yeah. Well, I think I imagine that the frustration for a lot of Sabres fans this year was that, you know, if you look at this roster, uh, it was a reasonably competitive team, all things considered. I mean, Robin Leonard would play like a top 10 goalie, which is a really nice development for them. And aside from some early season injuries up front, they had a pretty intriguing group of forward talent, especially at the top of the roster. And I think ultimately that is, what makes the blue line uh, they decided to roll with that much more uh, frustrating or indefensible. I mean, you mentioned that like 12 guys or so played there. I mean, I was like blown away when I was doing research for this podcast. I didn't even like, I was like Casey Nelson, Brady Austin, like are these actual, uh, actual people? And then I think the most egregious of all is that, listen, Josh Rogers has had a nice career and he's been a serviceable player for a long time, but He's a 33-year-old now, and I think there's been a case to be made that like he's been at the, at the end of the road of his uh, of his playing career for a good like four or five years now, and they were leaning on him pretty heavily. So I think that's like it's just tough to reconcile those things. Where if there was even just like a, le- a certain baseline level of competence in the back end, uh, this is a team that could have been pushing really legitimately for a playoff spot down the stretch. Yeah, and I think that I think that's where one of the one of the bigger Dan Bilesma criticism comes into play because his his fallback option on defense for Ristolainen and let's let's face it I mean Ristolainen's the best of of the the group that they have I mean as far as youthfulness future you know ability all that stuff like he's the guy that you know they they basically said like all right this is what we're moving forward with and we we have to try to build around him but when the fallback option is to always put Josh Georges with him to play to play home base or to, or to, to do, you know, to do anything like whatever, that's not great. And, you know, we saw at the end of the year, Jake McCabe kind of struggle because McCabe started to show that he was maybe going to be that guy that was going to slot in next to him. And, and maybe that's going to be the pairing, but you know, he struggled at the end of the year, he was healthy scratch for a game. And I think that's where, you know, maybe at the end of the year where Dan's looking at it, as like, all right, we got to try to figure some stuff out for next season. Maybe he's, He's overthinking it a little bit. Maybe, you know, you know, McCabe was struggling under under some of those stresses too. But geez, I mean, it's when when these are when these are the the blocks you've got to play with and you've got to try to mess around with. That's it switches right back to Tim to say, all right, well, why didn't you get anything better than this? Why didn't you find 
maybe a, a veteran on the cheap who maybe could have plugged in a little bit better and done done a little bit more. I mean, it's it's very frustrating to, to think back to to look at what their what their idea of what their top six was going to be, and you're thinking, geez, you you, you think this is going to be a playoff team if this works out? I mean, I, it's it's crazy to think that. You know that a lot of people thought that, that was going to be the case. I mean, for me, I thought they were a team that could have been anywhere between eight and twelve in the East. Which I think that I think at this point that would have been that would have saved everybody their job if that had happened. Yeah, well, no, and that, that's that's definitely where uh, where Dan Bilesman and the coaching job he did ties into this because while uh, it's pretty clear he didn't have very many options, uh, you know, like his second and third defenseman in terms of five on five usage were Kulikov and Bogosian and. They're both like intriguing names that have had pedigree before and, and flashed upside, but they're also at this point, I think it's safe to say pretty flawed players. And like, I, I think they would have been well served to give guys like Jake McCabe and honestly, even, uh, even the, the worst Justin Falk, uh, better, you know, more opportunities to see what they could, they, they could do because they were doing well in the limited opportunities they were getting. So I just, it's, it's tough. Like I, I feel for Bosma because his hands were tied a little bit, but at the same time, it is one of those situations kind of like with, uh, with a Jeff Blashill in, in Detroit, or maybe even like a Willie Desjardins in Vancouver where they, I just don't think they ultimately did like we're doing enough to make what they had going on and get the most of it. So it's, you know, you can't entirely just absolve them of all blame just because they didn't have really good options to begin with. Yeah. It's, it's wild to think that, you know, we can sit back and watch these games and see the decisions made and say, well, what is he doing that for? Like we can sit back and just say, all right, why are these guys being put into this position? And I I think in Buffalo's case, it's a little bit different because, you know, Bogosian's paid, paid like he's a, a top two defenseman, top three or four. And he hasn't exactly played that way. You see flashes of it. You know, you see parts of it where he's physical, he's engaged in the play, he's, you know, he's keeping the offense going, he's really jumping in, and it, like you're like, all right, well, here's the guy that, that we thought was going to be like this all the time, but then, it, you know, that guy shows up, you know, for, for a few shifts on a game, and maybe once out of every five or six games. And that, that's what gets frustrating. I think that was the case with Kulikov at the end of the year. Once, his, once the back was healthy... And I and I still don't think it's totally healthy, but you know the, the the back was healthy, and you know whatever his upper body injury was, we don't we don't know what that was. But once he came back, I mean, we saw it in the the second to last game against the Leafs, where um, where Buffalo won that game five to two, and you saw that was you know you saw the best and worst of Kulikov because he got turned inside out by Matthews, which hey, that happens. Austin Matthews is really good, but then you see. You see him make up for it by by you know teeing up Eichel for for a one timer, and he let go probably the hardest shot I've seen all season for a goal of his own. I mean, it, but when you show up once in a season, and granted, you know the injury thing for him was was a bigger deal, but but when you show up once towards the end of the year out of like ten or fifteen games, they ain't getting it done. And I at least at this point, Buffalo could walk away from Kulikov, or Kulikov walks away from them, you could feel fine, but. Jeez, I, I, but like with Bogosian, they're they're kind of stuck. I mean, you, you'd think like, well, expose them in the expansion draft, and you know maybe Vegas gets crazy. But they're they're kind of stuck. Like if they lose him, they got nothing. They have nothing. They have nothing to back that up. Yeah, yeah, but it's it, it's like over five million over the next three years is uh is a is a pretty big financial pill to swallow. I, I, it's always tough um, when you're evaluating, uh, you know, especially trades that didn't happen at the deadline because you don't know what was available and what the conversations being had were. But I do think that 
one of the more sort of low-key interesting subplots and and maybe this tied into the frustration and ultimately uh today's news was that like it was it was weird to me that the sabers just kind of sat on their hands and didn't do anything especially with some of these guys that are impending free agents that either won't factor into future plans or aren't weren't necessarily guys you had to keep around like whether it was kulikov or franzen or even like a brand giant i just find it hard to believe that those guys wouldn't have been appealing to certain contenders for even like depth draft picks which uh you know tim murray seems like a guy he who would have valued that and has in the past like I, I don't know like what happened there do you think he just wasn't getting enough in return from them or or, or what happened there to make him just, just just stand pat and not do anything yeah i think well with what happened with brian gianna was he had he had offers for gianna and he went to brian he said he's like listen you i know you want to be here you love being here it's home i mean he's from rochester so i mean it's home for him but you know gianna made it very clear weeks in advance of the trade deadline and, and again and you know on trade deadline day he said he's like i do not want to leave here he's like i will not go anywhere else he's like i came here for a reason and you know according to some people back when he had signed with montreal after after uh leaving new jersey apparently he wanted to come to buffalo then i mean years and years ago and just didn't work out at that time for him to come to, to come to Buffalo, but when it finally did, you know, here at the end of his career, he's he's happy here. He's you know, it's his whole family is here, and this is the place that he wanted to be and where he wanted to stay. I, to me, you, I mean, I'm again, it's it's tough to be the guy in that position, but to me, I'm I could suck it up for a couple of months, go somewhere else, live out of a hotel, and then say, you know, come back and talk to Buffalo in, in the summer and say, all right, let's let's get it back here. But maybe even in a case like that, maybe the offer isn't great. And I think that was the case for, for guys like Kulikov and for Franz and where the offers weren't very good. I mean, if it comes down to, I, I have a feeling Tim probably the, the price for Kulikov is a little bit higher given that, you know, that's his neck on the, on the line on that. But, right. um, but for a guy like Franz or whatever, you know, maybe the offer is like a six round pick and it's like, well, no, I'm not, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to move a guy who's immensely valuable. I mean, Franson, for all of his offensive work, I mean, he's tremendously valuable. And I mean, I, I keep thinking, you know, one one rumor I'd heard, one team I heard that was rumored interested in Franson was Minnesota because they needed some help on the right side, which I thought was weird with, you know, with Matt Dumba and Jared Spurgeon. But maybe they just wanted to cinch it up on the right side and, and get another guy who can be really good on the power play. And, for some reason, that didn't that did, that didn't even work out. Even though Murray and Chuck Fletcher are you know longtime pals and they've always made trades, but you know this it's it was the kind of thing where I think all the prices, all the asking prices were way too low for these guys. And GMs just aren't going to make a they're they're not going to make a trade just to make a trade. And even though I think Tim would be the, the, the type of guy who would who would make a trade to make a trade, but if the price if the comeback price isn't that great, then he's just not going to do it. And I. I think maybe Tim took a little bit of heat for for what he let uh, Tory Mitchell and Brian Fling get away for to Montreal for for basically nothing. I mean, those were seventh round picks essentially. But yeah. um, you know, those are, those are the kind of trades you can't have can't have happen if those guys end up going somewhere and and end up hurting you in the end. And you've seen Mitchell Mitchell score enough against Buffalo and Flynn's just you know those are I mean they're fourth line guys but they're steady guys but. Yeah. You can't let him just get away for for basically nothing, especially arrivals. And you know, if if the price, if the asking price is that bad, I, I mean, I can't I can't blame Tim or anybody else for for not making a move if it means they're going to look bad at the end. 
Yeah. I mean, all the, listen, I, I've given up trying to make sense of, uh, why people evaluate Cody Franz in the way they do, because it seems like he should have been a player that like at least five, uh, playoff teams would have been trying to get, especially considering how uh, suppressed his price must have been. And for whatever reason, he's just, he's just one of these guys where I think just the way he, he plays and maybe his, uh, you know, easily perceived lack of foot speed turns people off, but it's like, it's just it's telling that teams generally just do better when he's on the ice first when he's not on it and if i was a gm or a coach that's something that i would be looking at and say well after so many years there's there's something to this beyond just what i'm seeing with my eyes but uh i don't know i guess uh, i i've given up trying to convince people if, if you haven't bought into cody friends and at least being like a serviceable nhl defenseman uh then it's probably just not going to happen <laughs> yeah it's it, franson's thing is fascinating to me because and i'll be totally forthcoming here i from you know from when i first started doing uh this work for nhl.com where i was in toronto and buffalo my first year cody's been like my go-to guy to talk to about picking out i mean because he's he's such a smart player like if there's if there's like a system thing or like reading a play question i'll go to him for it and he'll break it down for me and he'll you know he'll help me understand it better he's been he's been immensely helpful for me at that over the years and he's he's a guy i've gotten to i don't tend to get close to a lot of guys at all because that's the business it's the way it goes but cody's one guy where you know i would go and do the Tim Murray thing, have the cup of coffee and, and go talk to him about, you know, family and life and all that. But, but with him, you know, he was, he was pretty honest at the end of the year where he said, you know, I mean, he's, he's concerned about what his, you know, what's going to happen with him over the summer. Cause I mean, you don't know whatever's it, whatever's going to happen as a free agent, but he, his biggest, his biggest complaint was that his, his raw numbers, the goals, the assists, all that stuff weren't good enough. And that, and that's probably a good reason why a lot of maybe a lot of teams are looking at it and saying, "Well, geez, this guy, this guy's supposed to be a power play guy, but he didn't have any goals, he didn't have any assists. What's going on here?" And you know, never mind that that was kind of a product of the whole team. Nobody on the defense really scored other than Ristolainen, and even he only had six goals. Right. But you know, it's it's something where you know he's worried about the he's worried about the raw numbers of things, and I think a lot of GMs still look at it that way because. You know, they look at it straight up as a, you know, if you can produce, you're going to get your no matter what. And, well, the league's not exactly that way anymore. Hmm. I even told him, I said, you're, you're I said, you're kind of an analytics darling. I said, I wouldn't be surprised if you get some phone calls based on that. And he's like, he's like, well, I don't even, I don't even like look into that stuff. He's like, I, you know, whatever. But he goes, he goes, but the facts of the matter are my raw numbers aren't great. So that's going to hurt me in the end. And I wonder if that may be played into it. I think I think Cody needs to hire a better like marketing manager. I feel like uh, you know if he, if he brought me on board to run his uh, PR campaign, he'd be like just getting all these interviews out of uh, just dropping random references to analytics and just and just just hyping himself up because I definitely feel like uh, he there's an opportunity here for him. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's it, it, the funny part is is that that was essentially a role that he, that he was he was in in Toronto where you know he, that's what he was doing and I think Randy Carlisle put it into his head like we need you to be more physical you're a big guy you need to hit more and then I think the I think the second season the second season in Toronto I think he led the team in hits and, and his offensive game suffered for it and everybody's like well this guy's not so great anymore and it's like oh god it's like 
all right, enough. You know, I think you know. I think Cody knows what he's doing. He knows what he knows how to play. He means a smart guy. Yeah, he's not. He's not the fastest skater. It's that's that's one of the things you got to deal with. But I mean, if you can plug him in on your second power play unit, fine. Go. I mean, you're gonna probably do pretty well. He's got one of the most accurate shots I've seen from from a defenseman. Period. I mean, it's a hard shot. He always puts it on that. And if you got a guy standing in front, you're probably gonna have some good luck. Yeah. Well, no, and that's the thing. I, I think a good point. Uh, in referencing his uh, his lack of uh, counting stats is I think people sometimes lose sight of the fact that in the NHL, um, you know, offensive production is so uh, context-based and situational-based, and that's what makes evaluating players who are playing on, uh, you know, not very good teams, uh, it makes evaluating them a, a, a tricky challenge, right? Because, like, you see based on who they're playing with and, and the roles they're in, it, it affects things so much. So when it comes to Rasmus Sterlinen, who has been a massive topic of discussion uh, on hockey Twitter with the analytics community, it's 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 tough because you have to factor in the fact that he's playing so many of his minutes with Josh Georges, who's pretty clearly uh, anchoring his his possession stats and bringing him down. And so, like, you gotta you gotta factor all this stuff in. And sometimes just looking at the superficial stats might paint uh, a picture which isn't actually reflective of the guy's abilities or, or or what he's capable of. Yeah, and that's that's the hard thing about analyzing Sabres players that have been here that played through you know the the tank the tank and the tank junior seasons where I mean obviously the the the, the tank season and I, I probably shouldn't even be referring it to that way but what it's the common the common term for it but that season I mean anybody who played on that team that season you basically have to throw out any of their numbers for that year because how do you how do you account for a team that didn't even try to possess the puck that didn't even try to do anything that looked remotely like trying to play good hockey i mean they didn't score goals they gave up i think the most shots on goal in 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 jesus i history basically you're the most shot attempts in history i mean it's it's a team that got so grossly outshot i mean you you can't even you have to like you have to do a guy's career numbers with by subtracting that season out i mean there's so many data analysts that that i kept up with during that season that when they, whenever they were graphing numbers or they were, they were laying out the numbers, they said, we had to omit Buffalo because they're so far off the map. <laughs> yeah. Pointless to even have them on there. Like it's, it's astronomically bad. And, you know, I, I think, you know, and obviously with wrist and it's, I mean, I get why it's a hot topic because anytime he makes a mistake, it's like, well, this is why he stinks. And every time he sets somebody up or he has like a, you know, he comes up with a great play. It's like, it's like, well, you know, I don't know. I don't know. We, we still got to figure him out yet, but what I mean, I don't know. I don't know. If, I don't know for him if it's a case of where he's the the best of of a very bad bunch, or where he's just the the best guy in a group where everybody else is literally an anchor on his on his ankles. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a bit alarming that you know his numbers are bad with George's, but even if you take him away from George's and put him with a guy like Jake McCabe or whoever else, they're not necessarily like you know skyrocketing. It's not to the point where he's elevating everyone he's he's playing with so that's a bit alarming but i I try not to wade into this wrist line and discussion too often just because like this happens with with you know all all sorts of players but it's like it seems like people just can't be rational with him where it's like you can say that 
he seems like an intriguing young player who's still very raw and has physical tools and could potentially wind up being a really good player while also acknowledging that, you know, he probably shouldn't be your best defenseman who's playing 26 minutes a night and doing everything for you. Like there's, there's a middle ground there. You don't necessarily have to say he's a, he's the best or the worst. Like sometimes a guy can just be like a perfectly fine, intriguing uh, player and, and we can, reserve uh our judgment on him until we we know more about him when he's playing in a better situation yeah and i think that's you know i i I i think that's really why a lot of the contract issues that happened last summer where it took them forever to get him sealed away uh came into play because i my my thought on that was that they that yes, he was the number one on the Sabres, but I'm, I'm not sure that Tim Murray was convinced he was a number one defenseman, period. Mm-hmm. And that's where, you know, that's that's where a lot of the, the haggling over over money came into play because because um, how are you going to give a guy, you know, five and a half, six million, six and a half million a year if you're not sure if he's your guy? I mean, they've, they've, already, they've already took on a guy who's in that sort of mold in, in Bogosian who's you know, making that same kind of money and you're already like, well, we know he's not the number one guy, but you know, I think with Ristolainen, at least he's he's young enough, and it's not to say that Bogosian's old, but he, but Ristolainen's a lot, you know, is four, five, six years younger than Bogosian, and you're still not sure if he's the guy, but um, the, but I mean, that's the spot where you know, it's that's tough. I mean, you're you're kind of stuck with you're kind of stuck with with trying to figure that out until you develop. I mean, at this point, you have to develop your own top defenseman, and I think that's that's where a lot of the a lot of the hope for the Sabres falls on a uh, falls on Brendan Gooley to, to to maybe be that be that next guy for him. But geez, that's it's not an enviable position to be in to to, to tell a guy who just finished up his probably his last. I think it was his last. It's going to be his last junior year to say like, all right, man, you're a guy. Like, <laughs> just jump in there right away out of out of Prince George. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't seem like a recipe for success. Um, okay, so. I guess the the one final logical question here before we wrap this up is where do the Sabres go from here? Um, especially in terms of the hiring process, like do they entertain the idea of, of sticking down the younger inexperienced route? Because there are some intriguing names we've seen floated about, whether it's, you know, Julian Brisebois from, from Tampa Bay or Jason Botterill from, from Pittsburgh who have been cutting their teeth in the business as assistant GMs but don't necessarily have the, the GM track record yet? Or do you think they get scared off by the Tim Murray experience and maybe go with a, with a more sort of proven veteran influence like a, like a Dean Lombardi or something like that? Well, that, that's, that's the million-dollar question right now with this because you would think they would stay away from you know, a new face because, you know, they did that this time and it didn't work out. Now, granted, I don't know that guys like Jason Botterill or, or Julian Brisebois have, have the same sort of aggressive personality Tim Murray does. Mm. And, you know, maybe maybe they could just come in and, and just be brains about it and say, listen, this is what we're going to do. And just take take control that way. I, I, I mean, if you're going the experienced GM route, I mean, I'm... I, I'm not sure who else, aside from Lombardi. I mean, my brain has just been just short-circuited by having all this just come up today. So we haven't really like kicked around ideas of like of, right. of experienced GMs who are out there. But I think if you're going the the Dean Lombardi route, I don't know that that's. I mean, yeah, he's won two cups recently, and that's that's great. But I don't know that that's that's the road you want to go down if you're Buffalo. I don't know if that's that's the way to go. I to me, you got to go. 
you got to go with somebody who's whose knowledge is is more based in the the forward movement of the game, you know, and putting a team together that way. I think this if you're if you're looking for an old school guy with an old school mentality, I think that's that's the wrong move. Yes, because I, I, I don't think that's the way you're going to get wins. I think if you're if you're getting if you're going to get somebody who's who's like an old school guy that knows what they're doing, then I mean. <laughs> I don't. I don't know that Scotty Bowman wants to be a GM. I don't know that you know. I mean, that's that's basically the highest part of the totem pole that you need to go if you're going old school. Is that you got to get somebody who understands that that the game is always evolving and and not just stuck in a way where you know they they think of the game. Well, this is the way it was when I was a manager in you know x x x years, and then say, all right, I'm just going to do it the same exact way. Well, no, you're you're just going to be spinning your wheels. I think that's that's what they have to do as far as the GM. When it comes to the coach, I mean, that's a whole other that's a whole other discussion that needs to be had because you know, I it crazy as it sounds, I mean, Dave Quinn is the one name I have heard thrown around a lot, his you know, Eichel's coach from BU, but mm-hmm. I mean, with how this whole thing is played out with Jack and, you know, the the rumored stuff, I mean, is that even the right move you want to make? I mean, I don't even know if that's if that's even good for optics, but I mean, as far as the GM goes, though, I think you need a young voice. I think you need not a, necessarily a young voice, but a guy who who thinks the game in the modern way, and who can move and can move the team ahead that way. That, that to me is, if you want a no brainer move, that's that's the kind of guy you got to get. Well, listen. Uh, in terms of the GM, I, I I don't necessarily I'm not necessarily responsible for this, but I'm not shooting it down either. I've seen some uh, some people start the Filipovich for GM movement on uh, off getting it off the ground on Twitter. So I'll just I'm gonna throw that out there and and uh, let you guys figure that one out for yourselves. But uh, listen, Joe, I appreciate you taking the time. I know this is a, a pretty crazy. Uh, going to be a pretty crazy couple of days here for you. Um, I appreciate you coming on and, and sharing some of your expertise in the situation. And we'll uh, we'll definitely get you back on sometime down the road. Yeah, Dimitri, it's it's great to finally get a chance to talk with you about all this. And uh, yeah, if you need a if you need a press agent for the uh, for the for the dim for GM movement, I'm your guy. Hey, likewise, uh, tell Cody Franzen that if he uh, if he needs someone to pump his tires, I'm here. Okay, I'll I'll do that. If I hopefully I get to see him again, uh, may, hopefully in a Buffalo locker room. Yes. All right. Talk soon, Jim. You. you got it. The Hockey PDO Cast with Dimitri Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO cast. Mm-hmm.